Church, go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 23, verses 8 through 39 will be the text. I'm going to read uh, just the middle portion of this to get us started, and then we'll take up the rest as we go. Remember, we're looking at the epilogue of, of 2 Samuel, so we've... We've already considered the, the chiastic structure. Remember the A, B, C, C, and that's the main point, B, A, uh, sort of literary unit, literary device that helps us understand this unit. We've seen the outward sections of sin. I did this. Outward sections of sin, sentence, sacrifice, and salvation. We've moved into those closer centerpieces. We started with a list of David's mighty men last week. This is another list of David's mighty men. Um, and this is the second one. So we're going to finish up 2 Samuel by taking the center portion, spending some time on that the next couple weeks, that being the song of David and his final words. So this morning we're in 2 Samuel 23. We're going to read verses 13 through 17, the second list of David's mighty men. Here's what the text says. <clears throat> then three of the thirty chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Ephraim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem um, that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. First Baptist Church of Gray Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, thank you. For bringing us this morning to the presence of Christ, empowering us by your Spirit to hear and to believe. We thank you that you continue to transform us more and more into his image, and that word is impressed deeper upon our hearts. Father, even more than that, we thank you for every spiritual blessing that is already ours through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. In him we have our inheritance. So help us this morning as we take up this list of mighty men to consider it in the grand scheme of redemptive history as it's recorded for us in your word. Would you help us to see and understand that we might walk more faithfully in this present evil age? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So we actually have a lot of ground to cover this morning. But it will do us well to keep in mind what we saw last week. We saw David becoming weary to the point of being sidelined, no longer able to fight even half a Goliath. We saw the refrain in that text last week that there was war again, war again, war again. And yet we saw hints of hope in that passage as well. That the Lord will provide a greater victory, a great salvation for his people as he did through the hands of those mighty men. This morning, as we come to this text, the big idea really is this. 
The Lord works victory through mighty men, not by the might of men. Let's try that again, because that obviously sounds a little confusing. The Lord works victory through mighty men, not by the might of men. That's what we're going to read, see, and believe in God's Word this morning. I want to start, though, not actually with men, but with a theology of weapons. Have you ever thought about what the theology of weapons is? Did you know that it's not the Second Amendment, right? Did you know that when you talk about what the theology of weapons is, it's not, the Bill of Rights was not, it's not written and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Did you guys know that? I hope, I really hope that you did. Uh, Some of you are really worried right now about where this is going, and I'm you're thinking about using your Second Amendment right probably on me, um, but please don't. Um, we are going to examine that. Listen, it's important for us to understand what the theology behind weapons is, particularly in our area, primarily, I would imagine, more conservative, more um, uh, gun owners in here than not, I would presume. Uh, what's the theology behind that? Do you know? Do you care? <laughs> Have you ever wondered? Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say about a theology of weapons. Um, First, we see this. The Lord works victory in our passage through weapons. I've got a string on my shirt I had to pull off. Um, This probably goes without saying, but the first thing we see and know about weapons from the Scriptures is that weapons are dangerous. Weapons are dangerous. If they're not, don't use it as a weapon, right? Weapons are not only physically dangerous, though, they're spiritually dangerous. They provide a constant temptation to trust in the might of man and not in the spirit of the Lord. In First and Second Samuel, weapons have often been associated with the prideful and violent man who defies the living Lord. In fact, Hannah's song back in 1 Samuel chapter 2 introduces this theme at the very beginning of 1 Samuel by declaring the futility of the weapons of war against the Lord of Israel. She says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 3 and 4, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken." And those who stumbled are girded with strength. Then she goes on to say this reoccurring theme we've seen over and over again throughout both 1st and 2nd Samuel in verse 9, which is, For by strength no man shall prevail. That's what she says in verse 9. Not by might shall men prevail. That becomes a recurring theme for the books of Samuel. Over and over again we see this. So if you think of 1 Samuel 17, the event of David and Goliath, that's an illustration of that very truth, is it not? The mighty Goliath, the epitome of pride and violence, armed to the teeth with sword, spear, and more, he's defeated by feeble David, who relied upon the strength of the Lord. It's an illustration of what Hannah said in chapter 2. Multiple examples could be given here, but the point is clear. Weapons are not simply dangerous physically, but spiritually. Swords, spears, horses, chariots, vast numbers of soldiers or warriors all pose the same threat. The temptation to trust in the might of man. But the word of God teaches us that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. The battle 
belongs to the Lord. Another theme that's recurring through both books of Samuel is is those whom the Lord is with are victorious. Those who the Lord is not with are not. Or stated another way, as we read it here in our own text in chapter 23, verse 10, the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. And again in verse 12, this is recounting the acts and deeds of those mighty men that were listed to us. It says, so the Lord brought about a great victory. The point is clear. The Lord was with, the Lord granted a great victory. So weapons are dangerous, not just physically, but spiritually, and they are also, I would argue, optional. Weapons are optional. All the men who are looking to buy their new gun are being (laughs) poked by their wives at this moment. Uh, No. Just as the spear alludes to trust and dependence on the strength of man. A a non-weapon actually illustrates the fundamental reliance on Yahweh, the Lord of Israel. For example, Moses' weapon was not a sword, but a shepherd's staff. Joshua and Israel defeat Jericho by lamps, trumpets, and a mighty shout. Shamgar, the third judge in the line of judges, fights his battle with an ox goad. Gideon uses torches and trumpets. Jael struck a mighty victory with a tent peg. Samson often used his bare hands and on one occasion used the jawbone of a donkey. David in 1 Samuel specifically uses a stone or a sling. All these examples communicate the same point. Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Weapons don't save, neither does strength, skill, or wisdom. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So weapons are dangerous spiritually, they're optional, but you can't move on to the next point without stating clearly that weapons are useful. Now some of you who are worried are starting to shake your heads a little bit, right? Even though weapons are dangerous and optional, they are often employed. So more often than not, we read of swords than we read of ox codes. Weapons are an important factor even in the scriptures. Sometimes I think there can be an unintentional consequence that we do often in proclaiming one truth that we unintentionally deny another. The truth I want to be careful not to deny is human agency and responsibility. See, in all those examples given a moment ago of those non-weapon weapons, they are unique circumstances with specific instructions. Moses was commanded to go against Pharaoh and all of Egypt with his staff. Unless there's a a direct communication from the Lord when someone breaks into your home to walk outside and walk around 40 times and then shout at the person, weapons tend to be useful. I'd recommend a sword, right? Or unless a tent peg or jawbone is really the best instrument you have laying around, I'd still recommend a gun. Does that make sense? See, the examples we consider, they're descriptive, not prescriptive. They're not prescribing what type of weapon the people of God ought to use. Remember, David wielded a sword and did so in a mighty fashion. In our list of mighty men, the very first is wielding a spear, the second a sword. The point is not no weapon or, uh, or a weapon. The point is, where does your trust lie? 
What are you ultimately relying on? Where is your ultimate hope? See, the point is even though weapons are useful, they are not in themselves agents. Weapons are not agents. They are tools deployed for good and evil. They accomplish nothing on their own. A spear doesn't thrust itself. A sword doesn't swing itself. A gun doesn't fire itself. As our passage reminds us, the Lord works victory through weapons, but the Lord also works victory through people. In a sense, it's theologically correct to say that weapons, uh, that people, I'm sorry, that people are weapons in the hands of the Lord. In fact, I think it would do us well to take a moment and think of a number of examples here. And let me preface this with a reminder that God is always working providentially in every circumstance, situation, every time and place in accordance with the counsel of His own perfect will uh, as we read in, first, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. People simultaneously are acting always freely without any interference of God causing them to do or to will something they do not will. So the Lord can take up a man as a weapon. And we see the, the, the scriptures clearly teach that the man can intend one thing and the Lord can intend something quite different, accomplishing his will even through the wickedness of his instruments. So let's look at three examples of people being used as weapons in the hand of the Lord very quickly. The first is Israel, right? We've got to start there. Israel is a weapon in the hand of the Lord. Just for a moment, taking up a wide-angle lens, if we go back to Genesis chapter 15, God calls Abram out of his homeland to the land which he would someday give to his seed. He promises to make Abram a great nation and that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. And this is made more certain in the form of a covenant ratification ceremony. And in the course of that covenant ceremony, the Lord says this to Abram. Speaking of Abraham's seed, Israel, he says, But in the fourth generation they shall return here... For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Lord is saying, not yet, but four generations from now, I'm going to give this land to your children. And why the delay? Well, one reason the Lord explicitly states is the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. So in Joshua, when we read about the Lord giving the land of Israel, God's not simply blessing Israel with someone else's land there. In fact, the Lord himself makes it clear in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24. He says, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. See, the Lord was cleansing the land of its iniquity caused by the people who inhabited it. He was driving their iniquity out using Israel as the weapon of his, instrument, of his judgment against their sin. He actually says the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. There he warns them not to think that they were receiving the promised land because of any of their inherent righteousness. He says... Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. 
that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are two reasons given, and neither of them have anything to do with the righteousness of Israel. Israel isn't receiving anything because of how good they are, but because of the promise to Abraham and the judgment against the inhabitants of the land. Israel is a weapon in the hands of the Lord. One of my favorite examples, though, is Samson. Samson is a weapon in the hand of the Lord. I mean, who can read a list of mighty men and not think of Samson? Bubster and I got to go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C. earlier this week. And one of his favorite things in the playroom was this exhibit with Samson pushing the boulders out like this. And he asked me ten times, Dad, who is that guy? Which one is that guy again? I mean, Samson's awesome, right? Loves the strength of Samson. Judges 13 contains his birth narrative. An angel of the Lord comes to the wife of Manoah. She's barren, but she's going to conceive a son. And from conception, he is to be raised as a Nazarite. His hair is not to be cut. He is not to come near anything dead. He's not to drink wine. And in chapter 14, his mission begins in earnest. What's interesting is it begins with him seeking a Philistine woman which is directly prohibited in the law and by the first chapter of Judges specifically. Samson tells his father, I want that Philistine woman. And his parents are like, come on, Samson, can't you find yourself a good girl around here? There has to be someone else. And Samson's like, no, I want the Philistine woman. And then we read this in Judges 14, verse 4. I think that's the message version of the Bible. Uh, He says, But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Did you hear that? So the Lord is working all of these things according to the counsel of his own will. Samson's down here disregarding the word of the Lord, seeking a Philistine woman. And then the inspired word of God tells us that the Lord is at work in Samson's disobedience in order to drum up an occasion to deliver his people from the Philistines. Samson is a weapon in the hand of the Lord. This becomes unmistakable throughout the rest of the Samson narrative. But chapter 15 is very very instructive. See, after Samson routs the Philistines and hides up in the area of Judah, the Philistines come down to capture him. Judah comes out to Samson and rebukes him for stirring up trouble, specifically for Judah, but most of the Israelites. And so they're going to hand this dude over to the Philistines. Judah handing Samson over to the enemy. Samson says, okay, as long as you promise not to kill me, you can hand me over. So they bind him, and then we read this in Judges 15. When he came to Lahai, the Philistines came shouting against him, and then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand, and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. That's next month's memory verse, right there. One man strikes down a thousand men with a jawbone. See, we already knew the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's the reason, by the way. Not by Samson's might. The Spirit is the one who prevailed. One man can't put a thousand to flight unless it's of the Lord. That's the point there. It's not the point that Samson was just 
some jacked dude. It's not it man here. He's the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's why Samson is a weapon in the hand of the Lord. Finally, Assyria also is a weapon in the hand of the Lord. We know this as well, don't we? Assyria is a weapon in the hand of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, by the way, if you're in our Wednesday night Old Testament survey class, you know a lot about Assyria. And if you don't, then we, we failed you. Um, but Isaiah 10, this is the Lord speaking, who says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation. By the way, that ungodly nation in Isaiah 10, you want to know who that is? It's Israel. God's using Assyria against the northern kingdom. And then they'll come right after Judah, right up into Jerusalem before the Lord stays his hand. He goes on, Against the people of my wrath I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet he does not mean so. Nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off not a few nations. When Israel's filled the land with iniquity, the Lord wielded Assyria like an axe against them. But then, of course, we know he turned around and destroyed the axe. Isaiah chapter 10, verses 15 through 16 tells us, Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? Or shall the saw exalt itself against him who saws with it? As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up, or as if a staff could lift up as if it were not wood. Therefore the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones. And under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. You can actually read this, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 35-37. The Lord strikes down 185,000 Assyrians without help from any man whatsoever. Just does it. By himself. That does lead us to our final point here. We've seen that the Lord works victory through weapons. We see the Lord works victory through mighty men. But we also need to know the Lord often works victory through mighty men. But he doesn't have to. Right? We know that. He doesn't have to. He defeats 185,000 Assyrians without anyone's help. This is the Lord who freed Israel from Egypt. How? Did Israel raise a sword against Egypt? No. This is the Lord who in 1 Samuel 5 defeats the Philistines all by himself. Remember Dagon? Back to our passage. The Lord works victory through mighty men. But if we read the context of the scriptures, we have to acknowledge that it is not by the might of the man. We've already traced this theme throughout the book of Samuel. But I want to point out a few important observations when it comes to our text here in 2 Samuel 23. We read this list of mighty men, and who can't possibly read it in such a way that we think the might of the man is what has prevailed in the situation? Why? Because we interpret passages like this in light of the clear, explicit teachings in other parts of the Scripture. Not by might shall men prevail is pretty explicit. As you find it repeatedly declared and clearly illustrated throughout First and Second Samuel, it becomes even more clear. So we get here to 2 Samuel 23, and we're not surprised that we read twice in this passage, the Lord worked or brought about a great victory. But I want to look at a couple more internal clues in our passage that point us to the right direction. The first part of this passage has some movement toward it that's really worth noting. You have a list of mighty men first, and then chief among them is the one who wielded a spear. 
He destroyed 800 at one time. Then from the spear, we move to the sword. Then from the sword, we move to a man who makes his stand and no weapon is mentioned. I think that's significant. So so just remember that the author is trying to communicate a point here. And the way he says things is very important. He lists this mighty men. He starts off with a guy with a spear, killed 800. Guy with a sword, killed plenty. Then we move to a guy who has no weapon at all. Or at least it's not mentioned that he has a weapon. Maybe he did. But we move from sword to spear to a man making a stand without a weapon mentioned. His story is in verses 11 and 12, right before we begin reading. Here's what it says. And after him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistine had gathered together, Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Now, listen, that's kind of ambiguous, right? He, he may have had a weapon. I'm not arguing here that he didn't. I am arguing that the author intentionally didn't mention one. He moves from sword to spear, spear to sword, to a man making a stand and striking down with what? Maybe his hands? We know it's possible. Maybe it was a jawbone we've seen before. Could have been an ox goad. Could have been a sword or a spear, but the author intentionally mentions none. Second, this is more subtle. I've already drawn our attention to Samson. I did that intentionally. There are several references from 2 Samuel 23 to the story of Samson in Judges 15. If you keep in mind who Samson is, if we remember that he's a weapon wielded by the hand of the Lord against the Philistines to work Salvation for God's people, there's a sense in which where Samson begins is taken up and typologically fulfilled in David. Samson begins the victory against the Philistines. David actually accomplishes or completes victory against the Philistines. Again, this is typological. It's, it's not the ultimate victory promised for God's people, but it's the immediate fulfillment of what Samson begins. And so there's... There's a conceptual connection between these two passages, but there's also a connection of place. That that last, in verses 11 and 12, the man who bears no weapons in fighting actually takes place in the same place that Judges 15 does. Samson fights his battle against the thousand Philistines with a jawbone. Now, in Judges 15, the name of the location is repeated constantly. Attention's drawn to location, Lahai. But the Hebrew in our passage, you didn't see a place. And that's because it's just slightly different in the Hebrew, which is to why it's not mentioned in the NKJV. But if you have the ESV, they feel confidently enough to say that this took place at Lahai. Holiday Lexicon states it as Lahai as well. And if it's the same place, then we have an intentional allusion to, Samuel, or to Samson and his event. That's not our only clue to the same event. Samson and David both work a great salvation, don't they? Samson says that at the end of his war, the Lord worked a great salvation. So also is it stated by Shema. Then the event at Lahai ends with Samson almost dying of thirst. Now this is where it gets interesting. The event where that one man takes a stand without a weapon and defeats the enemies of God. That moves now directly into the passage we just read which was David's thirst. So does Samson. Samson makes his stand against the Philistines. He strikes down a thousand men 
Then he almost dies of thirst. That that man was apparently not so mighty after all, was he? Strikes down a, a thousand Philistines, then all of a sudden almost dies of dehydration. Not by might shall men prevail. How ironic. The Lord responds to Samson's plea by splitting open the hollow to provide water for him. So he's able to drink and he's revived. You know what the men do, these three mighty men? They split open, actual same exact Hebrew word, they split open the Philistines. The Lord strikes open the hollow to provide water for Samson, and then these three men strike open the Philistines in order to provide water for David. It gets better. What does Samson do next? Samson actually goes, and because he's a macho man, he goes and he rips the gate off of Gaza and carries it all the way to Hebron. Interestingly enough, the narrator of our passage makes clear that this well that David longs for, where is it again? At the very gate of Bethlehem. He points it out twice. The gate event in Judges 16, it's not as we might be tempted to interpret it, simply just an impressive display of human might or strength. The importance of that passage is far more significant. We go back to Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. The Lord promises Abraham this after almost sacrificing his son Isaac. He promises him this. He says, your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. See, I know that might seem like a very small detail, but it's hugely significant as you're reading your Old Testament. Samson's not just awesome because he can rip a gate off a city. It's a reminder because this is exactly what the Word promised. The Lord is working to literally possess the gate of His enemy, but that works in reverse order. In our narrative, who's possessing the gate of Israel? The Philistines do. See, see, David... He requests a cup of water, not because he's thirsty. He pours out the water, actually. He's not about to die from dehydration. He's got water in the camp. What does David long for? Why does he long for water from Bethlehem? Because he longs for rest from war. He longs for peace in the land. He longs to be able to go to the well at the gate of Bethlehem and draw his own water without looking over his shoulder, without his armor, without his sword. See, see, that's really the function of both of these passages. What we have here are a record of great victories that point us to a need for a greater victory. Don't they? Look, look for all the victories that we have recorded in First and Second Samuel... There's been a bunch of them. The reader of these books through any age will acknowledge that they have accomplished nothing, though, of lasting value. The peace and the rest they want was always temporary. Every time you have to take up a sword and the Lord works another great victory, you know what you're reminded? That the enemy is still active in the land. There's always a need for another victory. There's always a need for another mighty man to throw off the yoke of slavery. There is always a need for another deliverance because of the shadow of the thing is not the substance of it. And this record of the mighty men and their mighty deeds illustrate the need for decisive victory that's going to bring real and lasting rest to the land. The passage points to the futility of physical war that brings only temporary peace. There was always another war. But David expresses his desire for real, abiding rest. 
a land without enemies and an age without war. And if everything I just said in regards to the great victories actually point us to the need for a greater victory, the good news, friends, is we have that victory in Christ. Does this help us understand what Christ actually accomplished? I believe it does. See, just as great victories point us to the need of a greater victory, mighty men point us to the need of a mightier man. Mighty men point us to the need for a mightier man. One mighty son of David would eventually come who would wield neither sword nor spear, but the word of his father. He, he would take his stand in the wilderness against our greatest enemy and obey his father where we failed. These mighty men in 2 Samuel are but a shadow and Jesus was, is, and will always be the substance. Jesus is the true and better spirit-empowered man who defeated the powers, principalities, and rulers over this present evil age through his death. He rose victorious over the powers, principalities, all the authorities, every rule on the third day. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where even now all things are subjected to him. His body has become the gate that no enemy will ever possess. In Christ, the Lord was working through the greatest victory ever, through the mightiest man ever, not by might, however. No spear, no sword, no horses, no chariots won our victory. Instead, it was the faithful obedience of the Son of God unto death on a Roman cross. Friends, if you walk away with nothing else, walk away with this. Understand what what not by might means. It doesn't mean that you can't carry a weapon. It means your weapon can't be your ultimate trust. Your bank account, your physical strength, your education, it can't be your ultimate trust. There is nothing in the end that can save you besides Christ Almighty. You see, Jesus is not by might made manifest. It's who he is. Jesus is not by might made manifest. He has made all who trust in him mighty men. We are mighty men. Sorry, I have to use men. Mighty people or persons just doesn't work for me. I've got to use the biblical language, but it includes men and women when it says that. By virtue of faith, we've been united to Jesus in such a way that the mighty man lives in us. Think about it, saints. Like, how in awe would you be if you actually saw a man take a stand, pick up a jawbone... And kill a thousand people with it. Like, you'd be impressed, right? Do do you realize that's nothing compared to the stand that Christ took? Uh, The victory that Christ accomplished when he defeated the powers, principalities, rulers, and authorities in the heavenly places. And now you're united to him? Like, that's your identity. You are mighty unapologetically. Listen, this is a list of real men who accomplished real things for God's people. They really fought. They really stayed while everyone else fled. These men are commended for their mighty deeds, and rightly so. But now that the type and shadow has been replaced with the substance who is Christ, we really have to think carefully about how we make that move and apply it to ourselves. So as we close, I just want to offer a few recommendations towards how we apply this, and then we'll end sometime before 1 o'clock, I'm sure. 
The first is this. First application we can make from this is might doesn't make right. Might doesn't make right. Actually, it, it should be doesn't make righteous, but it doesn't rhyme as well if you add on the us on the end. Mike doesn't make righteous. And guys, this, this is a message we need to hear over and over again. Later this afternoon, remind yourself. Remind one another. Text it to one another. We must wholeheartedly hold fast to Christ alone as our only trust. And this will require us to fight actively against the temptation to trust in horses and chariots. The Bible hammers this point, right? If the Bible brings it up that often, you know what that says to us? It says that we are extremely susceptible to misplacing our trust. And understand that that might takes various forms. Whether it's actual strength and literal weapons, or maybe it's just a trust in your nation's ability to safeguard your security and prosperity. I wouldn't put a whole lot of trust in that, especially... These days, maybe it's your education. Maybe you feel like as long as you're wiser than everyone around you, you can safeguard that which is most valuable to you. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. No might, no riches, and no wisdom will be of any help to you on that day. So might doesn't make right, but might doesn't make wrong either. Might doesn't make wrong. Again, I always say this. There's, there's always a temptation to fall into the ditch on the other side. Right? One passage reminds us that, that might is not the problem. Um, and then one warns us that it may be. We have to say in the middle here, the, the list of men and their deeds illustrates that it's not weapons and physical strength that are inherently evil. Not by might does not instruct us to despise might. It teaches us not to trust in it. You understand the difference between those things, right? Like, like don't come up to me and say, Pastor Cody, you're right. I, I, I don't want to get an education now because I don't want to get too smart, you know? Or I could stop working out now because might doesn't matter. Bring on the chips. In fact, the weaker the better, right? That's what you're saying. No, that's the wrong application. Jeremiah says it well in chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Notice he doesn't say, let the wise man be less wise, or the mighty man be less mighty, or let the rich man give away all his riches. He doesn't say that. He says, don't let them boast in it. Verse 24 but let him who glorifies or who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. So might doesn't make right. Might doesn't make wrong either. Third, we are all mighty men because we've been united to the mighty man. We are all mighty men because we've been united to the mighty man. I know I've already said it, but I want us to see it in the scriptures. And I think it's important because I think we can define might by simple physical strength. We can define might the way the world defines might. But friends, 
if you're united to Christ, you're mighty. And it's not inherently because of anything that you bring to the table. It's simply because you're united to the mighty man. Colossians 2, chapter, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Very important text. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, but let's read it. Paul says, "...and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Christ's victory on the cross was our victory over all of our actual enemies. The powers and principalities that stood arrayed against us, rightly accusing us of breaking God's law, they're now defeated. Why? Because they have no accusation. Christ's work on the cross has completely paid for every one of the sins of all who believe in Him. Do you understand what that means? The powers and principalities, it means they can, they can roar against us, they can threaten us, they can say whatever they want about us, but in reality, they have no accusation against us. As the Lord says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That victory is certain, folks. This is just everywhere. At the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus has been raised, it says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but that which is to come. So, so how great is Jesus' authority? It's absolute. He's over everything, right? Nothing can contend with him. He has all power, all authority. But then get this, verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to The church, just picture this, you have to picture it. He's raised above all powers and principalities. Where have they been placed? Under his feet, right? And he's been given as head to the church. Now verse 23 is significant. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me ask you, I'm not a doctor, so help me out here. What's the lowest part of the body? It's the feet. He put all things under his feet, and guess what we are? We're part of his body. You know what that means? We're mighty, folks. The best our enemy can do is shed our blood, and even that is to the praise of his glory. What can they do? What can they take? We own it all. It's ours going to, all going to be ours in the end anyway. You are the beloved of God Almighty. You've been seated in and with his Son in the heavenly places, and he has put all things under his feet. No wonder Paul tells us at the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it's, it's really clear church family, we've, we've got victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one more thing that's clear. And that is we are mighty and we are at war. We're mighty and we're at war. This deserves a whole nother sermon, by the way, but got to get you out of here soon. 
what a victory. Like, think about this. We're united to the God-man, Jesus Christ, the mighty man. His life is in all of us. All things are below his feet, and he's the head over his body, which is us, which puts us over all things. That's our victory. And yet Paul's able to say, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. And notice, that's a commandment. See, what I want us to hear is that we are the mighty man united in Christ together, but this warfare language is used often. But I want to make sure we hear is that there's a real commandment to be strong. How? Go home and pump some iron? Eat well? Be financially strong? Sure, I recommend all those things, by the way. Learn how to use a weapon or two? Maybe some nunchucks or throwing stars? I don't care. But here's what Paul says. Be strong in the Lord. The man who prevails will make the Lord his refuge. So, so we hear that commandment to be strong, and here's how. We, we hold fast to our confidence. We, we clothe ourselves in Christ. We stand against the schemes of the devil that come to us and say, God love you a little bit more if you did this. God's displeased with you today because you missed your Bible reading. You haven't prayed in three days. You know God doesn't love you anymore, right? We know his lies. Clothe yourself in Christ the mighty man. Hold fast for if we have Christ as an anchor. And friends, he has truly gone ahead of us. And he has given us the victory. Praise be to God. Would you stand as we close through a word of prayer? Gracious Father, we thank you for the mighty man, Jesus Christ who has wrought the only victory that we really have ever needed. The victory that brings rest to the land and peace for all eternity. The battle continues, yes, but Lord, it's already won. Would you help us to be a people who stand firm, holding fast our confession in the face of whatever the devil might throw at us? Help us to remember that we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is above every power, principality, ruler, and authority. Help us to remember, Lord, there is quickly coming a day when our Lord will return to cast all lawbreakers and every cause of evil out of his kingdom forever. Help us, Father, to be faithful until that day. We ask in the precious name of your Son, Jesus, our great victor, the mighty man. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. We come now to the time of our invitation. Um, not many people preach on this, and uh, it's an interesting week to kind of look through um, and think about a theology of weapons and theology of how, how often our tendency is to put our trust in our own might and just the way that looks in our day-to-day life. And I, I feel I don't have to hammer that home, but I feel like, Lord willing, you heard this morning that there's nothing that can save you besides Christ alone. And, and your trust should be fully and firmly in Him. Now, how that looks for each and every one of us as opposed to application is going to be different. Some of us probably have struggled a whole lot with putting our trust in our nation's ability to keep us safe and 
really just in safety in general, like the, the need, necessity for everything safe. But friends, again, there's no security outside of Jesus Christ. Like that, that's the point. He, he alone is worthy of all your trust. And so whatever that thing is, whatever that thing that tempts you to say, find your security here, find your salvation here, this will be. Maybe it's Jesus and this other thing that keeps my security. Maybe it's Jesus and this other thing that really will save me in that day. Erase it all, keep Jesus, right? That, that's the point. So however that looks for you as a Christian who's walking day by day, whether it's just a, a need for prayer and help or accountability or, um, or just confession to say, yeah, I struggle with this. I, I need you to, to come alongside me and walk through what this looks like. Or maybe there's just opportunity for discussion. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I wish that Sunday school took place after service, you know, so we could just spend time talking about the sermon. But that's probably just me, not your Sunday school teachers. They're like, don't do that to us. Um, but regardless, what, what is it the Lord spoke to you through his word today? And how is it applying to you? Don't, don't do the thing where you come to church and you hear a sermon and you say, hmm, interesting. And then you go home and it has no impact on you whatsoever. That's not how the spirit of God works through the preaching of his word, right? That, that's not it. Wrestle with these things, work with these things together as a community because it's what God has set us apart to do. It's why we're here. So however that looks for you, share it with somebody. We're not in a rush. I know you might be hungry. That's fine. Come have lunch at our house. We don't have tons of room, but we'll, we'll invite you over. Our kids are a little bit crazy. It's, it's fine. We, we love you. We enjoy time with our church family. But friends, what, what is this, Right? This is, this is our family, and this is where we wrestle with these truths together, and so much of the culture screams, just, just come and go, right? Like a bug's life. You come, you eat, you leave. That's, that's it. That's not church. We come, we eat, we feast, we continue to eat, and then we encourage one another on and on today, as long as it's called today, so we not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Wrestle with these things together. Confess them together. What is it that you are putting your trust in and your security in? If it's Christ, great. If it's Christ plus and anything else, not so great. It's Christ alone. Maybe you're here this morning and you have really no idea where to put this sermon because you, you've only put your trust in yourself. You've only put your trust in the things of this earth. You struggle with whether or not there actually is a God or actually is an afterlife. Let me share with you the story of the scriptures. And I know that we hear this every week if you're part of our church family, but this ought to be your favorite part of the service. <laughs> Friends, let me share with you the story of the gospel. The Lord Jesus has saved us from our sins, but how? Well, it started with God the Father who created this world in, in six real days. On the seventh day he rested. He created all things good, including man, who was to be his image bearer. His chief of all creation was mankind. He breathed life into man, creating them after his image. Man and woman, he created them, and everything was good. Everything was perfect. They lived under the good and right design of their father. And yet, one day, they decided to reject God's good and righteous design, him being creator and ruler of this earth, and instead live for the glory of themselves, live as the arbiters of truth, the one who should be able to decide that which is good and right and wrong. The problem is they're not God. So they rejected God's good and righteous design and instead designed a life for themselves to bring honor and glory to self. And this is condemnable in God's eyes because he's still creator and ruler. 
This is breaking his good and righteous law, and it's therefore deserving of punishment. And the punishment for that sin is death. Not just physical death, where we experience death for the first time, but spiritual death, an inability for mankind to ever be in a right relationship with God ever again. On their own terms, for mankind to ever seek after God. Romans 3, what we read. That was broken in the garden. It's broken in the nature of man. We cannot, on our own terms, be right with our Creator unless someone pays the penalty for our sins. And praise be to God, someone has. But not just anybody. The God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who never disobeyed the will of His Father, living perfect union with Him. And He didn't do it by sword or spear. He did it through faithful obedience. He, He purchased a righteousness that you and I could never attain on our own. And then He went and, and suffered the penalty for our sins on the cross. He died the death that we deserved and earned and gave us the gift of righteousness that He Himself had purchased for us so that God no longer looks at us as just objects of His wrath, deserving of His wrath. He can now look at us and call us son and daughter, but not based on our good works or good deeds, but based on the goodness and righteousness of His Son, Jesus, that cover us in His blood. Friends, this is the story of the gospel. Jesus Christ on the cross took the penalty for your sin, and in Him and in Him alone you have life. If you would but repent and believe in this gospel, then today can be the day for your salvation. Today can be the day where you call out to Him and you have a security that nothing in this life can ever afford you. Nothing in this life can ever bring you. Is that day today for you? Have you ever given your life to Christ? Have you ever fully submitted to the gospel, turned away from your sins, and believed and trusted in the finished work of Jesus to be enough for you to have a relationship with Him? If not, then please come down front after the service. We'll have men here who would love to talk with you about what it means to be saved this morning. We'd love the opportunity to do that very thing. Friends, God is good, isn't He? He's just and He's merciful to give us His word and His church. Pray that He works through His Spirit.